So uh, if you don't know me, um, my name is Tim Long, and uh, I am just one of the members here at the church. And so um, we're going to be going through the book of Acts um, over the next, I don't know, couple of months or so, um, however long it takes, I guess. Um, and different people will be um, coming up here to, uh, to go through the chapters of the book of Acts. So... Um, with that, let me go ahead and just start us off in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, just thank you for this day. Um, thank you for this morning and the, the rain, Lord, and the drizzle out there. Um, just for your um, providence, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. And we just thank you, God, for um, this study and your word. And Lord, we just ask that you would bless our study, Lord. And anytime we read your word, we just ask that you would, um, Lord, help us to understand it. Father, help us to apply it, to make it personal for our lives, that we could um, walk, Lord, in, in a way that pleases you and glorify you in all things. And we thank you and praise you in your name. Amen. Okay. Well, I appreciate you all for uh, giving me the opportunity to um, come up here and talk about God's word. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. If you don't have uh, a little half-sheet outline, um, there are some floating around. Does everybody have one? Okay, you can raise your hand if you don't. We'll try and get you one. So um, it's not going to be exactly like how Andrew does it with where he has, has like uh, specific times where he stops to give you the word to fill in the blank. It'll, there's blanks on there, um, but I'll just kind of be talking about them. So as I talk about them, you can kind of figure out what to write in there and then... Uh, and fill in the blanks that way, but I probably won't stop at every blank to, to give you a word to put in there. Um, so I'm going to be going through Acts 13, and I will just say, um, Andrew last week did a study on um, Acts 1 through 12, leading up to chapter 13, so I'll be doing one chapter. That just kind of shows you how powerful Andrew is. He does 12 chapters in one morning. And I'll be lucky to get through uh, one chapter. So, and Joel last week did two verses, so I don't feel too bad about it. So, um, so anyhow, we'll be diving in. Um, just wanted to start off by um, reading through the chapter, if anybody um, would be willing to grab a microphone and read through Acts chapter 13. So, it's not too long. Well, it's kind of long. Actually, let's just read through the first, um, the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 13. Would someone be willing to do that? Okay. Let's get him a microphone. Thank you. Now there was at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fa fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. 
And when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, and man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn to the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of, to, of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would uh, lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what, ha what had happened, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Okay, thank you. Um, so we'll be uh, going through this chapter here real quick and just kind of trying to uh, um, understand some of these verses. Uh, but first off, just kind of thinking about how do we get to this point since we're starting uh, kind of in the middle of the book of Acts. Um, you know, what's happened up until this point? So you know, we talked a little bit about um, last week about who uh, wrote the book of Acts. Anybody remember who wrote it? Luke. Yep, you can go ahead and, and answer out, because um, I'm going to, it'll be a little bit more interactive, maybe, um, but I like to, to throw out some questions for people. So who did he write uh, Acts to? Anybody remember who it was written to? Theophilus, right? And um, it's interesting, because that the name Theophilus means um, a lover of God. So when you think about the word uh, phileo is one of the Greek words for love. There's uh, several Greek words um, for, for love, like we know the word um, agape, and there's the word eros, and the word phileo. Uh, phileo, um, the city of Philadelphia gets its name from this Greek word. Anybody know what the city of Philadelphia is called? brotherly love. That's right. And that comes from that word, phileo, which means brotherly love. So that's why you call it the city of brotherly love. Um, so that word, so some, some have, you know, thought that he's writing to the lovers of God, you know, so the, to the people of God. Um, but, uh, you know, <clears throat> Luke is writing this book to him and, uh, or to us and giving us an account. So it is a continuation straight out of uh, his gospel. So if you follow through the gospel of Luke and then you kind of move right into Acts, he kind of picks up. Um, you know, there's a lot of great things that happened um, in the book of Acts. Like you have Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit is being sent down. You have, you know, the day of Pentecost and all that. And then you kind of see there the scene that's set where um, the gospel had kind of been within the nation of Israel up until that point, and Christ came to the nation of Israel. Um, the Word of God, you know, as we'll talk about in Hebrews later, probably in, in a couple of years, um, when we talk about the oracles of God were um, with the Hebrew people, with the Isra Israelis, with um, that nation. And we see it on the day of Pentecost, the gospel has now been sent out. You see there's people there from many uh, 
tribes and nations all around the world from many languages. So you have, uh, you know, the gift of tongues, which is the gift of languages, um, and people are speaking in all of these different languages. It's an amazing scene, and then from there you see how the gospel is now going out to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world, which includes us. So praise God that that, that happened. Otherwise, um, some of us might be in trouble um, if it was still contained with all within the, the nation of Israel. So you have that going on. Um, in Acts chapter 9, you see that Saul is converted by God. Um, you know, and there's, you know, it's kind of a neat example. Um, you think about that in Acts chapter 9 when Paul um, is met by the Lord on the road to Damascus there. What does that tell us about God's sovereignty? You know, the fact that he was taken. Well, if you think about it, did Paul do anything to cause that to happen, cause that encounter to happen? No, it was completely the Lord. God did it in his sovereignty and and kind of got Paul's attention in a way that there was no way he could ignore it. And so um, you see God's sovereignty, and we'll talk about that a little bit in the passage because it comes up again uh, in Acts chapter 13. Um, God's sovereignty is on display, and we can see how he truly, you know, is in control, um, and he's sovereign in election, sovereign in our salvation, and uh, it's kind of an amazing thing to see. Um, in Acts chapter 11 um, is when you have you know, the recounting of the vision uh, where Peter was given uh, the vision. You guys remember what that vision was about with all the different, uh, the di yeah, exactly, the different animals. Um, and what was unique about these animals that they were unclean, exactly. So even though it was against uh, the Jewish law, the law that God had given them in the Old Testament, he's telling them, arise, kill and eat, and go and um, and kill one of these animals and have them even though they're unclean. So he's kind of showing how, you know, that Old Testament law, which was, you know, he, he, the main message there was about, you know, the nation of Israel. It was all about the nation of Israel in the past, but now he's saying those things that are unclean, which, you know, is the Gentiles, um, you're free to now go take the gospel to the Gentiles. And of course, Paul was known as what? As a as the, the apostle to the Gentiles, right? So he, Paul took that even further, and God used him to take the, the, uh, the message of the gospel all around the world, which we'll see a lot of that in Acts chapter 13. Um, so Edgar was reading there, you know, about how he went to um, the Salamis and went to the island of Cyprus and all that. I kind of want to go to the island of Cyprus, but Paul beat me there. Um, so in Acts chapter 12, you see um, how Peter had been miraculously freed from prison. You remember the prison doors opened up um, and all that. And so God was doing things. Also, we see through the book of Acts that Herod, um, one of the leaders, the, the kind of the king there in Israel, was becoming more and more aggressive in his persecution of Christians and his persecution of this new sect of people that were... Um, going out and sharing the gospel and proclaiming uh, what Jesus had done. So getting into the text a little bit, it says there in verse 1, Now there were in the church in Antioch prophets, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Paul. I'm not going to read through all the verses because uh, it would be a lot, but I'm going to kind of, um, kind of go through different sections, highlight different verses um, so don't be mad at me if we don't get to every verse, but I'll kind of summarize um, 
the important points, I'll try to, in those verses. So we see here that we're focused um, at the church at Antioch. And Antioch was a significant city um, in the development of the early church. Um, what, what term, anybody know what term was first coined in the city of Antioch? That's a common term today that we use. The term Christian, right? And uh, Christian means uh, little Christ. So, you know, those of us that, you know, hopefully live as Christ lived and are like a miniature version of him are called Christians. So that's a word that, of course, we use uh, often today, and it's a, you know, a broad term as it's used. But it was first coined there um, in the city of Antioch, and it means little Christ. So there were two different cities uh, that were called Antioch. Um, one, the one that was being mentioned here is in Syria. So if you look uh, modern-day Syria there in the Middle East, and uh, the other one was in uh, Pisidia, in, in the region of Pisidia, which is in what we call today Turkey. So you remember Turkey and um, the Ottoman Empire and all that that had, had been there at one time, and then now we, we just have the, mo the modern-day uh, country of Turkey. So, um, so there's two different cities, Antioch, so it can be a little confusing as you read through there. Um, but you think about, like today, you know, even here in Texas, um, we have, there's all these towns that all have, you know, names uh, that are used in other states and things like that. So there's a lot of repetition. So you talk about a certain town, like maybe Cleveland or something like that, and there's multiple Cleveland locations around the country. So um, you can kind of see how it could be a little confusing. You just have to pay attention to kind of where they're at in their journey. Um, so in verse 2, he says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. So God asked them uh, to set apart these two men, um, Barnabas and Saul. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, you saw in, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus sent them out in what numbers? Two by two, right? And you see here that these two men are sent out later on, um, you know, John will join them for a time, and then later he'll uh, be sent out from them by Paul. But you see these two men, uh, Paul and Barnabas, and, and later you'll see, you know, Paul and Apollos um, oftentimes going to these places, and it's, it's just good to have somebody partnering with you uh, in the gospel. It's difficult, especially if you're going into a hostile area, to, you know, be completely by yourself. It's very easy for us to, to kind of get down and, and not feel very encouraged and, uh, and lose hope. But when someone else is there, just, you know, God can use that and really help us um, to not lose hope, you know, not lose faith and those kind of things. So Paul and Barnabas um, traveled together. It's interesting here that the Holy Spirit, you know, still refers to Paul as Saul. Um, you know, why would that be, do you think? Well, he was known for a long time as Saul, right? And that he had only recently started to become known as Paul. Um, so in that name, uh, or Saul, you know, is his, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit in a couple of verses, but that's his Hebrew name, right? And so Paul is his Roman name. And so it's a, a very similar name, but that was a more Roman type of name, and God gave him that name uh, so that 
because it partially possibly because you know he was going to be a man to share the gospel with the world with the entire world with the roman the, the, the world at that time uh was a roman world you know so the roman empire was in full swing the greek empire had kind of you know fizzled out a little bit then the roman empire took its place and so the roman empire was definitely in charge at this time so um, god gives paul gives saul a roman name paul um and then also, um, he gives Barnabas a new name. So we all know Saul and Paul, but I have here a $100 bill for anybody that can tell me what was Barnabas's original name. What did you say, Joseph? Okay, pretty close. Um, Joe. <laughs> Joe. Joe is good. So here's your uh, $100 bill. Uh, you can pay me in, by check, cash, or Venmo. However you want, it's fine. So uh, I'll give it to you afterwards. So, um, so yeah, Joseph, as uh, it mentions there, um, I think in Acts chapter 4. Um, and what does the name of Barnabas mean? But also it tells us there in Acts chapter 4. Son of encouragement. Son of encouragement. Is that what you are, Michael? Can you call yourself a Barnabas? So, <laughs> so there, there's a question for you. Um, you apply to yourself. Could you call yourself a Barnabas? Are you a son of encouragement or a daughter of encouragement? Or are you a, a mocker and a scoffer and a critic? So I think we could all probably admit, uh, at least I can. I don't, maybe you guys. You guys are pretty spiritual. Um, I'm maybe not as much, but I could definitely identify myself as a, as a critic and someone that can find the negative in things, you know, someone that gets frustrated when things don't go how I want, especially when I'm working on my car. Um, uh, it can be a, a challenging time, but we want to be uh, more like Barnabas. And, of course, that was a, a very helpful thing um, for Paul to have somebody there. And it kind of makes a nice pairing because... Would anybody call Paul a son of encouragement? I don't know. I mean, he did encourage people, of course, but he had some pretty harsh words, as we'll see in this chapter. So he didn't mess around. So uh, he, uh, he got right to the point with, with false teachers and that type of thing. So we see Barnabas was a son of encouragement, which is a good thing for us to, uh, um, to seek for, to seek after. So then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. Barnabas and Saul and... Um, on Cyprus. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, um, and from there, they, all, they sailed to Cyprus. So, they relocate again. They're going to Cyprus. They're moving around. You know, people, you might have in your Bible a little map of all the different places that, uh, that Paul went on his missionary journeys, but he is here, you know, serving the function of a missionary. He's taking the gospel uh, to many areas and uh, to many different places around the world. They arrived at Salamis in verse 5. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And so that John uh, there, um, referring to John Mark, um, who is, um, I think is pretty well established. That was the Mark uh, that wrote the gospel uh, of Mark that we have in the Bible. So John Mark had traveled around with them, um, and they went to the Salamis, which is a city on the north. Uh, it's a little island right off the coast, if you look at the map there, um, from kind of like where Israel is and where 
Turkey and Syria, um, and it's just a little bit off the coast there. There's an island of Cyprus, um, you know, part of Greece, and, uh, and so they had gone there, um, and they were now going to, you know, preach the gospel and share um, the gospel there on the island. But what's significant about uh, where Paul went first, and this was his custom, as we'll see, you know, as he continues his missionary journeys, where did Paul go first when he came into a new town? The synagogue. Anybody, why did, why did he do that? Anybody have any thoughts on why he might have done that? Yeah. Why, why would he give the Jews uh, the first shot? Well, he was, you know, they were the religious leaders, and it's, it's interesting that, you know, the Jewish people were uh, God's chosen people, and Paul goes there, and he wants to reason with them and wants to show them they were the ones that have the history, right? They were the ones that were looking for the Messiah. They were the ones um, that knew how the, they should have known. And, and you see where Jesus uh, made this point in his ministry. They should have known that the Messiah was coming, and they should have known he was going to come from Bethlehem. You know, it's predicted in the Old Testament. They should have known all these different things. You know, he was sold for 30 shekels of silver, which was in, in the Old Testament. Um, and so they should have been able to, to see that Jesus was the Messiah. So he went there, and, and we'll see in his sermon here how he went through the history um, of Israel and how it leads up to Christ. Um, so they should have been able to get it. But how did they typically respond to him? They weren't having it, right? They weren't uh, enjoying hearing that Christ was the Messiah. And there's, it's an interesting um, lesson, you know, to be learned from that. But, you know, the religious leaders had their religious power. They had their political power. They had their influence among the people. They were set in their system, and they just didn't want to hear uh, this new thing that would overturn the whole system. So they, they wanted to protect the system. You know, and you see that uh, today. It's, a, it's been a hallmark of mankind uh, for many years. But people, when they get their little system set up, uh, they like to protect it. And so, um, so anyhow, going on to verse 6, um, it says there, When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, um, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Um, and Paphos is on the island there of Cyprus. You can actually see it. If you pull up on Google Maps, uh, it's there today. Um, seems like a fairly smallish kind of town, but, you know, it was probably a, um, a bustling you know, center back uh, in a city back in those days. But he went there. That's kind of more on the south end of the island. Um, and he preached the gospel there. And you can see here in verses uh, 7 through 10, um, I won't read all of it, but um, he goes there, and there's the proconsul Sergius Paulus, and then there's Elmas, the magician. And uh, it seems like Paul is making some headway there with uh the proconsul, and then Elymas comes in and, uh, and doesn't like that and tries to overturn what Paul is doing. Um, and you see there in verse, um, I don't know, verse 8 or 9 or so, um, but it says Paul, who was also called, or Saul, who was also called Paul, um, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So, you know, looking at verse 10 there, is Paul gentle in his rebuke? 
Do you ever rebuke anyone this way? Why was Paul so ungentle? See, that, you know, Barnabas was a son of encouragement, so it's hard to imagine him uh, rebuking this way. But Paul, um, when he encountered false doctrine and false teaching, and when people came up against the gospel, uh, he was not gentle. Um, and you don't hear today very many preachers. Um, you know, I think about some of the, you know, big-time, well-known preachers here in Texas. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, you just don't hear this kind of language. And some of them say, you know, yeah, this criticism stuff's not really my gig, not really what I want to do. I want to be a, you know, a son of encouragement. Um, but you need both, don't you? You need to have uh, the rebuke. And, you know, the, the elders of the church here are called to protect the flock, aren't they? So there's a lot of wolves out there. There's a lot of false teachers. There's a lot of elements out there. And you can't just be, you know, all namby-pamby, if I'm allowed to use that term, um, in protecting the flock. Sometimes if you've got wolves coming in, you know, you've got you to gotta go get out your shotgun or whatever, and you've got to take care of business. So um, sometimes it requires, um, it requires some intensity and some rebuke to knock down these false doctrines. But Paul wasn't having any of it, um, and he wanted to... Uh, to set the record straight as far as the gospel. And he talks there also about the crooked, um, straight, crooked of the straight paths of the Lord. Um, you know, what's a crook? When, we, when there's a person, we call him a crook, right? You guys know what that means. So it's a, a crook just means like a, a fishing hook is a crook. So it's, it's bent around. It's not straight. So it's interesting here. You know, you see um, the things of the Lord are straight, Right? And we see um, in 1 Corinthians 14.33, God, um, he's, a, he's a God of order, right? He's not, it says there he's not the author of confusion. So he's not the author of disorder. So the straight things um, of the Lord are the godly things. And the crooked, when we talk about that, that just means it's twisted. You know, like iniquity, the, the term from the Old Testament means inward twisting. You're all twisted up. So you're not straight. And that twisting is a, a, a sinful thing. And so, so don't be a crook. Be a, be a good person. Um, in verse 11, it says, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking the people to lead him by the hand. So he even called out a curse on Elymas, you know, which is a supernatural thing. Um, you know, and, the, and interesting here that, you know, this curse fell immediately, right? It didn't take a long time uh, for it to happen. Uh, it was right then. So to, today, you know, we, a lot of people that are trying to convince you that they can do miracles and all, you know, like there's a time period. It takes a little while and it might not be right now. And, you know, you might be healed today, but you're sick again tomorrow. Um, but this was immediate and immediate and very definite. And so, um, you know, we do see, um, there in verse 12, the, the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, he, he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So what was the proconsul um, amazed by? What really got to him? It was the teaching of the Lord, right? Was it miracles? Was it these incredible signs? You know, you do see in the, in the book of Acts, uh, the apostles performing some miracles. But what changed him and what, what got to him was the teaching of the Lord. 
That is the power that we have. Um, we have God's word, and we can share God's word with unbelievers and even with believers. You know, the teaching of the Lord is a powerful thing. You know, it says in uh, Romans ten seventeen. well, it, kind of a, an interesting story um, for my life is that years ago, um, we had been, you know, talking with some missionaries, and, and they were talking about a missionary uh, uh, endeavors in the nation of Nepal. And uh, this one guy was telling us this whole story of all these things that had happened, but yeah, they had gone into this village, and they had tried preaching, and they had tried um, convincing them of the gospel and all that, and nothing was working. Like, they were like, no, we've got our, you know, our Buddhist teachings, and we've got our, our way of doing things, and they, they couldn't, they just couldn't make any headway. And so they just started praying and praying and asking the Lord to, to show them some miracles. And so um, eventually, you know, according to the, this guy that was telling me the story, um, they started, you know, healing people and started having these miracles. They started performing these miracles in this village, and then the people then believed. And so he was making the point that, you know, just it, nothing was working, but once we asked God to do some miracles, and he did some miracles, and then they believed. So we were recounting this story to the pastor of my church at the time, and he said, but I thought faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's a good point. So Romans 10, 17, you know, says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It's not miracles that convince people. You know, you look at Jesus's ministry. He did lots of miracles, didn't he? Did everyone believe? Did even a lot of people believe? I would say that there was a lot of crowds. People were there to see the miracles, and they were there to get fed and all that, but most of them didn't believe. It's not miracles, um, and it's not these flashy shows of power that convince people. Uh, it's the Word of God. That's what has power in people's lives, and that's a, a lesson we can take away from this chapter. Um, so I'm going to skip down a little bit because I kind of want to get to that point. But you go through here, um, and he preaches um, in the synagogue. Of course, the, the rulers of the synagogue aren't too thrilled um, with, uh, with Paul's teaching. And they kind of, uh, you know, they ask for input from the people. And, and you can see there that the people, uh, the, the rulers, um, are definitely not having it, and they, they move in to try and stop Paul and Barnabas from preaching. Um, and you know, think about it, you know, they're trying to stop them from, you know, we talk about free speech in America, but they're trying to top, stop them from just speaking, right? And, you know, you can't hurt somebody by speaking. All you can do is change their mind, possibly convince them of something. But that's, that's where people know that's where the battle is won or lost and, and being able to convince people of the truth. So once enough people started to become convinced uh, about Christ, it would overturn their whole system. But you see there um, in verses 17 to 37, um, Paul goes through this history. He won't have time to read through the whole thing, but he goes through this history of Israel, um, and then he, he shows them, um, you know, it kind of leads them through, and it's, it's a, a sermon that Paul gives there, and it's an amazing sermon. It's the first sermon recorded uh, in the Bible that Paul gives, and we have a very good chunk of what he said. And he goes through and, um, and walks them through their history walk, and uses points of reference that they, can, um, that they can identify with and shows them the gospel and, show, and leads them 
to Christ um, and shows them how Christ is the fulfillment of all of these things. So, and then you see this response. What happens after Paul preaches here on the island of Cyprus? The people respond, don't they? And he even says that um, a large part of the city there, uh, a lot of the city, you know, they want to come back and hear him the next week. And uh, a large part of the city are just amazed and are just, you know, he says almost the entire city came to hear Paul preach. Um, the gospel was having an effect. You know, people were, um, were really hearing and really, um, you know, being changed by the gospel. So it's, it's amazing, you know, to see here the power of preaching, um, the power of God's word in people's lives, and that is really uh, what will convince people. So, um, you know, Paul didn't use a lot of gimmicks, you know, in the back of the outline, and talk about that a little bit here. Um, he used, the, you know, the preaching of God's word. He used the, the authority of scripture to appeal to the people. So we don't need a lot of, um, you know, flashy things. You know, there's churches that do lots of different things. You know, we could have a laser light show here. Uh, we could have a lot of drama presentations. You could have a lot, a lot of things, but um, what will convince people, what will change people is the word of God. So John MacArthur, uh, in his commentary, he had a quote here I just wanted to read to you because um, it, was, it was pretty powerful and pretty true. Um, but he says, Sadly, many in the church today do not share Paul's commitment to preaching the word. There is a dearth of biblically sound preaching, creating a famine in the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. I'm quoting there from Amos 8.11. From today's pulpits come the uncertain sounds of psychology, uh, relational chit-chat, social commentary, storytelling, uh, shallow homilies, and political rhetoric. Many view preaching as an anachronism in today's era of user-friendly, entertainment-oriented churches. Programs, uh, intractable church members, and administrative details eat away at the preparation time of those pastors who do want to preach. So, anybody know what anachronism means? You guys all heard that word before? So it just means something uh, that's, it's kind of like if you have something uh, today that's out of date, uh, that's no longer kind of relevant, that would be an anachronism. It's something like, you know, say a typesetter, you know, the, the job of being a typesetter is kind of anachronistic because you just have computers now and the computers do everything. Um, and so, so he's there talking about how the preaching you know, people think, yeah, that was in the old days, that worked, you know, but today we need all these other things and all these other ideas brought into the churches. But I like there where he kind of emphasizes, you know, the pastors, you know, and I've seen this, um, you know, in my experience with the church, but pastors can get very caught up in uh, the day-to-day -day activities. You know, we talked um, a couple of weeks ago about Acts chapter 6, where you see the deacons were established to free the elders up to be able to teach the word because it's very easy to get caught up in just all the needs of the body. But if you're not putting the time in and investing to preach the word, it's not going to be um, as effective, you know. And I've, I'm sure you guys have been to churches where, you, where there's been hollow, kind of shallow preaching. So I've gone to churches like that and, 
visited churches uh, that are that way. You know, before I, you know, our family came to this church, we visited some churches that were that way, and you know, we have a long, uh, a long service and a lot of standing up and singing and doing all these things, and then you get to the end, kind of the focal point, and you know, it's like 10 minutes uh, or 15 minutes, and you know, not really much is said. There's not really much exposition, um, but we want to have. The, the strong preaching of God's word, you know, and he makes the point in the commentary too that um, the authority of God's word is really emphasized when the preaching is biblical and when the preaching uh, is sound and it's taken from scripture. And so, um, so you can really see that there. Um, then at the end of this chapter in verse 51, um, it says, they shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium. So why do you think they shook the dust off their feet after this whole experience uh, with the religious leaders? So basically, the religious leaders uh, came down on them, and they wanted to, you know, stop them from preaching. They wanted to make it illegal, and they wanted to imprison them. And so um, they did this thing where they shook the dust off their feet, which they also did uh, when Jesus sent the disciples out to preach in different cities. They also shook the dust off their feet as well. Anybody have any idea why, why you do that? Why you knock the dust off your feet? Yeah. Yeah, well, you're basically saying that, that dust that I walked on when I was in your city, I'm I'm, I'm so against your city, I'm going to get rid of even that. It's not even going to be on my body. I'm going to get rid of that dust and move on to the next city uh, that is willing to hear the gospel, willing to hear the truth. So they would shake the dust off their feet uh, as a kind of a sign of judgment against them. And it wasn't the people that they were uh, shaking the dust off and they were upset about. It was they were making a, a symbol of the religious leaders that chased them out and wanted them to leave and they wanted to keep the people in the subjugation. So they were protesting kind of against the religious leaders that wanted them gone. And then um, someone read verse 52 for me, if you don't mind. Anybody? Yep. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit and praise God. So um, after having this experience with the religious leaders, why do you think their attitude was that way? They went from shaking the dust off their feet to joy and happiness. You know, because they saw, even though the world came against them, even though times were difficult for them, um, they saw the reaction and the, the gospel being preached, and they saw the change that it made uh, in people's lives. And so, even though they had the world coming against them, they were still filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And, you know, what a, what a lesson for us. This chapter is, you know, kind of negative for a little while, but there's a lot of positive, and it ends on a very positive note. But the positive, you know, the thing that we can take away from that, I think, is that even when we're in difficult situations, and you know, in this country is different than the Roman Empire was as far as being persecuted for sharing the gospel, but I think that's changing, and I think we'll, we're going to see a change 
um, in our lifetimes of things, and it, it already is uh, happening, where things are not going to be so easy. And really, we're just, you know, kind of stepping from this sort of uh, very nice existence and kind of utopian existence we've had in this country where there's a freedom of religion and a freedom to speak and all that, and, and starting to move towards just normal, the normal path of history. So that's been the way it's been throughout history. Uh, preaching the gospel has always gotten you in a lot of trouble uh, with the world because they hate, you know, what do they hate? They hate Christ. They hate uh, the truth. They hate God. And, you know, they, they love the darkness, uh, it says in John, because why? Because their deeds are evil. And so we're never going to be, you know, popular amongst the world as believers. But we've had it, you know, fairly good um, for a long time in this country. But, you know, that could be changing. But you can see here we can take hope uh, and joy. And when Paul and Barnabas and all the disciples preached and saw um, the hearts of men being changed. And so, and, and what, a, what a blessed thing. So I'll go ahead and close us out there and uh, get ready for church. So let me pray for us. Dear Lord, just thank you for this morning and um, for this opportunity just to bring your truth, um, Father, to, uh, to your people. And Lord, may we do as, as Christ uh, exhorted us to do in the Great Commission. Lord, may we um, teach all that you have commanded us, Lord. What a, what a mighty job, a mighty big job that is, Lord, to teach everything that you taught us and that you commanded us. Lord, may we do that. May we be a people that wants to do that and share the truth um, of the gospel with the world and with, uh, Lord, um, amongst other believers and amongst unbelievers, Lord, that we have in our lives. And, uh, Lord, may you be glorified in all these things. Amen. All right, so next week we'll be in Acts chapter 14. So we'll see more difficulties and more rough times uh, for Paul in that. Um, so go ahead and read through that next week. Maybe memorize it. And uh, we'll be back here, same bat time and same bat channel, uh, next week.